On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Dossier listeners, welcome to episode nine. I felt the need to record an explanation of my thinking behind these next series of episodes here on the podcast. And it's pretty simple. I wanted to go back and really, really look at Chuck Phillips' work during his time at the LA Times and maybe try and understand when, where, why, that he found himself in this mix of in bed with the LAPD, in bed with Suge Knight and Death Row Records, causing problems at the FBI as it relates to Phil Carson. And if there were any clues in his reporting, some of this material is so vast and complex and intricate. I think I am coming close to the end for now of this investigation. I'm not sure what new information is out there other than talking to new people, which I am actively trying to do. It must be five years now that I've kept a color-coded binder of information under my desk inside my home office. The binder was sent by a fellow television producer named Nicole Luciano and was very thorough. It had different colored tabs with different years assigned to them. There is no cover page. The full dossier is a catalog of the work of a journalist who has written for the LA Times, Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, Rolling Stone, Spin, The Village Voice, and The Hip Hop Bible, Source Magazine, among others. The name of this journalist is Chuck Phillips, who along with his partner, Michael Hiltzik, won an actual Pulitzer Prize for beat reporting in 1999 for a series examining corruption in the music industry for the paper of record on the West Coast at the time, the LA Times. I deal with lots of criminals. I mean, my whole uh, sourcing network basically is detectives, ex-detectives, and criminals. Most of the criminals. And because, you know, I believe that criminals know more about crime than anything. And especially if you can get to criminals who are in the circumference of the crime, and the best thing is when you get the guys who did it. You might be asking yourself, in this day and age, why would I want to tell a story about a lone journalist? Print is dead. These guys that did this reporting are relics, washed up, 
Not worth my time. Who cares? Well, let me tell you the following. What if I explain to you, I know for a fact, that Chuck Phillips has information, evidence, tape recordings, and most likely a treasure trove of documents that would answer the questions on who killed Tupac Shakur, who killed Biggie Smalls, and who at the LAPD had enough power to cover it up and why. But also, Chuck has more information and documentation and knowledge on Suge Knight and the many murders connected to death row records and the information on how Snoop Dogg was able to escape being sent to prison for the rest of his life on a murder charge because rogue LA cops and dirty lawyers stole evidence from police evidence lockers. This would be appropriately characterized as a gang-motivated type killing. It happened in this Los Angeles park. Snoop's bodyguard shot and killed 24-year-old Philip Waldemarium. Snoop didn't pull the trigger, but he, the bodyguard, and a third man were all charged with murder because prosecutors say they hunted down Waldemarium after an earlier argument. Snoop's attorney claims self-defense and says the DA has an agenda. That terrible music is going to get out into the public. That's why he's prosecuting this man. Chuck Phillips has the answers as to why for close to 20 years, he published stories in the Los Angeles Times and other outlets that have proven to be utter lies, falsehoods, and in one case was coached by a powerful LAPD fixer to plant false narratives inside the paper of record in Los Angeles that possibly got a confidential informant killed. Those who have crossed his path inside the world of the FBI, the LAPD, the NYPD, in the hip-hop music industry, in the murder-filled streets of South LA, all say the same thing. Chuck Phillips might be the most dangerous journalist to ever pick up a pen against hip-hop music and culture. His words have caused him to be sued by both Sean P. Diddy Combs, the infamous James Rosemont or Jimmy Henchman, and countless gangsters who, in his wake, has left a tangled web of lies that are still currently online for people to read and digest as fact. I can't yell louder that almost 50% of what he wrote, what was printed, was manipulated information or, again, just plain lies. It is startling to even think about. It's crazy to call what he did journalism. I was again surprised when I recently received a phone call from a source, yet again mentioning Chuck's name around a story that found its way into the New York Post. Again, lies, fabricated information, and fabricated law enforcement documentation. Now, all of this might be cleared up with a phone call or even say a three-hour interview with Chuck Phillips for him to explain his reasons or his mea culpa. I'm all for second chances. But the problem is, 
Chuck Phillips has disappeared. I've tried for years to track him down. I even sent him a burner phone to an address I thought he might live at so he could call me without being tracked. I've hired two private detectives that have come up empty and as someone who has spent years of my life reading through unredacted FBI files around the murder of Biggie, of Tupac, the FBI investigation into Suge Knight, the rumors about Puffy and many crimes in close to 50 recorded hours with Jimmy Henchman from a federal jail, I decided that I needed to go searching for Chuck. I need to put this story to bed. And that's when I knew, okay, you know what? Just like I thought all along, Burko is somehow involved with, with Chuck Phillips. That was the final straw. And then obviously, when I listened to those conversations that Chuck Phillips had recorded without Burko knowing, that was just, that was a nail in the coffin. Kevin Hackey in his first interview with the LAPD states, and I'm quoting, Chuck Phillips was frequently at death row functions and received payments from death row records. Some speculate that he was paid by either Jimmy Iovine or the LAPD, right? But I do know this. Of course, there was the Rampart uh, scandal and Rafael Perez and, and, and the, the cop D-Mac. Chuck knew all of these guys for for some reason. I think Chuck's known the truth the whole entire time, but he played both sides of the fence, which is ultimately why he got fucked at the end. I didn't look for Chuck Phillips. Chuck Phillips came and looked for me. He's the one who pushed the envelope and pushed false paperwork and false FBI papers and said that I confessed or this and that and all kinds of stuff about Tupac. I didn't put false information out there. He put false information out there. I didn't write the story. He wrote the story. He was gullible enough to listen to a James Sabatino who I've never met and bought a whole story about me and printed it in the LA Times. I didn't initiate that situation. And he still doesn't have a job. This was pure revenge. I know a little bit about Chuck's backstory prior to him becoming a journalist. And to me, that really doesn't matter. I'm sure I'll find out more. What matters is what can be tracked down right now, what can be sourced, what can be found either by digging on the internet or by visiting the archives of the LA Times or begging for articles that were written almost 33 years ago now at places like Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine. The first signs of Chuck as a journalist I found is an article that was written in November of 1990. It's titled, Artists Fear Racketeering Prosecution. Anti-obscenity crusaders are now using the far-reaching RICO statute to fuel their cases against pop music and arts targets. The article goes on to state that Florida's raunchy music makers two live crew and Cincinnati's Contemporary Art Center may have been cleared of obscenity charges in the last few weeks, but neither the music industry nor the arts community is resting easy. The latest chapter in a growing national debate over where in a democratic society art ends and obscenity begins and who should decide. Doug Tunnell reports. The Florida furor that has engulfed 29-year-old rap musician Luther Campbell and his group Two Live Crew today spread to communities across the country. 
The group's album, As Nasty As They Wanna Be, was ordered off record store shelves by police in San Antonio today. In Huntsville, Alabama, where the group is to perform this weekend, the city council tightened its obscenity laws last night. The group may face arrest, officials in Huntsville say, if the group's performance includes material ruled obscene by a federal judge in South Florida. Luther Campbell says his group would clean up its act for the Huntsville performance if the audience included teens under 18, but not if it is restricted to adults only. You don't tell us what we can do and say around adults. The adult has the right to listen to what they want to listen to. If they don't want to hear the two live crew, then they don't buy no ticket. They won't be at that concert. In Chuck's writing, this article in the LA Times really envelops possibly in a foreboding way what Chuck would become obsessed with. And that is the connections and figures swirling around the hip-hop music industry and his hunt to connect crimes to many of them through sources in the FBI, the Justice Department, and other law enforcement entities. The article goes on to state, most ominous say legal experts and entertainment industry officials are two recent court decisions that appear to open the door for prosecutions of rap singers and other legitimate artists under the same far-reaching federal anti-racketeering laws that has been used to collar and shut down drug pushers, pornography rings, organized crime kingpins, and Wall Street market manipulators. RICO basically makes it a crime to have a crime business. So I can go rob a bank, that's a crime. You and I could agree to go rob a bank, that's a conspiracy. We, we give an extra penalty to this. But suppose we agree that for the next 20 years we're going to rob five banks a year. Now we've established a RICO enterprise. We've established, basically we've established an informal business to commit crime. Now what does that allow you to do? It allows you to put them in prison for a lot longer. But the most important thing it allows you to do is to seize their property. I'm always traveling, always on the road. And the first thing I do whenever I get settled into a new city is I DoorDash items I know I can't live without. And it almost feels like home. Water, alcohol, a charger from my phone, snacks food from delicious local restaurants, and breakfast in the morning because you can't cook when you're living in a hotel. DoorDash, your door to more. So download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything from pet food to snacks to neck braces, alcohol, toothpaste, Joy-Con controllers for you gamers out there, pretty much anything. You can get it. You must be 21 plus to order alcohol, and drink responsibly. Alcohol is only available in select markets. DoorDash. Go download it. Come on. Get it done. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize winning author, Toni Morrison. A mesmerizing coming-of-age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman 2 will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers 
and seeresses, liars, and assassins. The inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife need a scintillating night out every once in a while at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. At the time Chuck was reporting this story, Two Live Crew was involved in court cases in Florida, Texas, and South Carolina. The FBI and the U.S. Justice Department were really looking at explicit lyrics and content in pop music, and for some reason they felt Rico was their best tool. While the story was focused on Two Live Crew, and this was a national story, I feel the undertones and themes of this early article by Chuck are themes he would dive deep into for some reason for the rest of his career. Not only would music become the focus, but hip-hop music in particular would become an obsession. Chuck must have found something sexy, something alluring, but you have to ask yourself, why? What was it that attracted Chuck to this underbelly? And in my search, the second article that comes up in my dossier is dated November 30th of 1994. And the headline is one I am very familiar with. Rap musician Tupac Shakur is shot in New York. Police say controversial rap star Tupac Shakur was entering the street-level lobby of an eighth-floor recording studio near New York's Times Square after midnight when three robbers confronted him and his friends. They ordered him to the floor. Uh, Tupac resisted. He was shot numerous times, at least twice in the head, once in the left arm, once in the thigh, once in the groin area. 
Shakur and his manager were hospitalized, Shakur undergoing an operation. The three assailants got away with jewelry, including about $40,000 worth of Shakur's gold chains and a ring. Now, full disclosure, the shooting of Tupac at Quad Studios and the story behind it is a narrative I have delved into many times, maybe too many. Once for the television studio Fox, I was an executive producer on a show called Who Shot Biggie and Tupac. And in the filming of that, we traveled back to Quad Studios in New York to interview some of the players. After that, I also produced another story and podcast on hip hop music legend James Rosemont, or what many in the press and industry called him, Jimmy Henchman. I've known Jimmy now for 10 years. I can call him a friend. And I no longer call him Jimmy Henchman because in conversations with him, I understand he feels the myth created around that name caused him to spend the rest of his natural life in jail. But let's not jump ahead here. The question I have is twofold. First, Chuck at the time was an LA-based journalist covering the music scene and LA and albeit the article he wrote on the shooting of Pac at Quad Studios in Times Square was short, why did he care enough to write about this? At that time, Pac was not a legend that he is today. He was a minor celebrity. Second, the first article Chuck would write on Tupac might be the only time as a journalist he told the truth and just stuck to the facts of anything having to do with the business of hip-hop, the shooting and murder of Tupac, and a laundry list of stories. And when I looked at the next article that Chuck wrote, I had a light bulb moment. Chuck was writing another Tupac story. And this time, he was with Tupac in person. He was sitting next to him in a recording studio in Tarzana, California. This studio was famously the Death Row Records studio of Suge Knight. I know for a fact now, it was this article and this access that signed his deal with the devil in Suge. Chuck Phillips and Suge Knight would become friends and business partners. Chuck would become the mouthpiece of Suge in the press. And if you believe the rumors, it is Chuck who received bags of cash to print red herrings, false stories, and lies as it related to the laundry list of murders, drugs, and gun running at death row, and ultimately the orchestration of the murder of hip hop's biggest superstar, the notorious B.I.G. The question that I want to get to the bottom of, why is Chuck Phillips running for his life? Is he a man with all the answers and secrets that hip hop fans have wanted to know for 30 years? And at what point did he realize that he needed to disappear? He needed to literally evaporate and leave behind a trail of destruction, lawsuits, deaths, and lies, printed lies in black and white inside the pages of one of America's most prestigious institutions of journalism. 
the Los Angeles Times. October the 19th, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Tupac Shakur, uh, Can-Am Studios, and Tarzana. His first interview. The times I had already bad things I had started new. Everything was beautiful. So, I know we didn't talk before, so I said, fuck it. Talk to Chuck. I'm glad you did it. <laughs> so, which one to talk about? Well, let's talk about what's happening. been in the studio for like, what, four days? When did you start? I've been in the studio since um, the day after I got out. Came here Friday. I got out Thursday. I've been in here since Friday. Mm -hmm. What do you think about Death Row? That's kind of almost like a family. Death Row? Like a, little, a completely different clip. You're talking about a clip. Yeah, completely, to be honest with you, man. It was no one else, nowhere else to go. No one else wanted to take me but the rock. Do you think more information lies with Chuck Phillips? And if Chuck Phillips was to talk or Chuck Phillips was to tell his story, what do you think he knows? You know, does he know it all? As, as some would speculate because of his relationship with Suge, his relationship with Burkow, his relationship as, let's just call it a conduit between the LAPD and his writing in the LA Times. Does he know, does he know all the answers? In my opinion, he knows a hell of a lot of them. And what people need to understand is you, me, Nikki, all of us have done years and years of investigation into Chuck Phillips, both on this case and on the Jimmy Henchman case. So I have dived so deep into Chuck Phillips and all of his actions in his career as kind of a mosaic. You know, you, you mentioned pattern and practice in an earlier episode and talking about the corruption within the LAPD. Chuck Phillips, when you look at everything, you know, Greg Kading likes to say that that uh, Phil Carson had a beef with Chuck Phillips, a writer from the LA Times. That is not even remotely the case. Chuck Phillips in his career was involved in some shady shit over and over and over. And I'll give you a few examples. You know, Kevin Hackey in his first interview with the LAPD states, and I'm quoting, Chuck Phillips was frequently at death row functions and received payments from death row records. A perfect example of how in Chuck Phillips is with death row records is, when Tupac Shakur is released from prison and signs with Death Row Records, the first interview he grants is not with MTV. It's not with any of the major national players, Source, Vibe, whatever. It's with Chuck Phillips of the LA Times. How the hell does that happen? This is a huge story. Um, you know, you've got a journalist recently coming out by the name of Curtis Schoon claiming that, well, he's a friend of Chuck Phillips and he claims Chuck Phillips knew Perez and Mac. When you go and dig into Chuck Phillips's actions and the articles he wrote during the civil trial, Chuck Phillips had this bizarre access to David Mack in prison. Chuck Phillips is getting quotes from David Mack to criticize Phil Carson's investigation or the civil lawsuit. He's literally using a cop who's in prison for robbing a bank and is a suspect in the murder of the most famous rapper in the world to comment on the professional conduct of Phil Carson and the lawyers in the Wallace case. It's, it's, it's laughable, but he's obviously in really deep with all these guys. And there's one more case that if, if listeners remember in season one, uh, your interview with Kenny Bogney, he brings up Anthony Pelicano, the incredibly corrupt private detective in Los Angeles who was convicted of 76 federal crimes in 2008, given a long prison sentence. 
you, you take a look at Chuck Phillips and Anthony Pelicano. Chuck Phillips had a personal friendship with Pelicano, was a guest at his wedding, was even acknowledged in a toast by Pelicano at the wedding reception. When Pelicano's arrested for racketeering, wire fraud, uh, illegal wiretapping, uh, one of the charges uh, Anthony Pelicano faced was threatening a lady named Anita Bush, who was an L.A. Times reporter, a co-worker of Chuck Phillips. Chuck Phillips, just like in the Biggie case, gets exclusive access with Pelicano. He starts doing interviews with Pelicano from prison. He starts slanting the articles in the L.A. Times in Pelicano's favor. And tell me if this rings a bell or not. He starts to attack the FBI agent investigating the case and the U.S. attorney prosecuting Anthony Pelicano. After Pelicano's convicted, Anita Bush, a co-worker of Chuck Phillips, released the following statement. The Pelicano case coverage in the LA Times as reported by Chuck Phillips should be examined. It's a case study of how Pelicano worked his media relationships to try to destroy his adversaries. The newspaper needs to look at every story that Chuck Phillips has written about the Pelicano case. FBI agent Stan Orneas, who had investigated Pelicano, was targeted in the pages of the LA Times courtesy of Chuck Phillips. And Phillips also wrote a story directly questioning the ethics of Assistant U.S. Attorney Dan Saunders, who was responsible for prosecuting Pelicano. That is the same song, chapter and verse of what he did with regards to Phil Carson. I would be willing to bet a month's salary that it was Chuck Phillips who brought Anthony Pelicano into Suge Knight, David Mack, and Rafael Perez's universe. And that's how the, that connection was made. Next time on The Dossier. He knows things for sure. He knows certainly, you know, what story Suge Knight was telling and selling. And, you know, he probably knows a lot about the machinations. Uh, around Suge to you know, control the narrative and, and push the story in one direction or another. I think Suge was his primary source for a lot of the stuff, you know, the, the false stuff that uh, uh, was published in the LA Times under his byline.